As we discussed in the last episode, most, if not all, of Mi'kma'ki was covered under kilometers of ice until about 20,000 years ago. Now, with both higher and lower sea levels, our coastlines were at times as far as Sable Island and parts of the Grand Banks and Scotian Shelf. Prince Edward Island would have been connected to the mainland, and even the Bay of Fundy would have been vastly different than it is today. Gwei, hello, and welcome to Utan, our living ocean. I'm your host, Brian Martin, and today our topic explores some of the early sites of Mi'kmaq occupation. Specifically, how some of those sites were related to living in harmony with our ocean. Today's special guest is Dr. David Keenlyside, a retired archaeologist who's worked across Atlantic Canada on a countless number of sites that is, and has spent the last 13 years as the director of museums in Prince Edward Island. Dr. Keenlyside has shared with us some of his findings and interpretations on the prehistory of the first peoples to call the Maritimes home. And I want to mention something that in today's episode, we're not talking about the cultures from thousands of years ago because culture is not something that we can infer from artifacts. But we are talking about the natural resources that would have played a role in the shaping of these cultures, especially those that are related to the ocean. A factor that, as we'll see, would have been incredibly important in terms of food and thus survival. So together, let's dive in. David, thank you so much for being here with us today. If we get right into it, looking at the map of Mi'kma'ki, there are many areas with indigenous place names. Is there a lot of archaeological evidence to back these places up? Yes, uh, for sure. Um, there's been, um, I guess, over a century of archaeological work uh, uh, undertaken in Atlantic Canada. And uh, ever since some of the first uh, findings back in the uh, uh, late 1800s, in fact, here on Prince Edward Island, there's good evidence that uh, there were remains of um, occupations by uh, and places where people lived in ancient times uh, that cover most of Atlantic Canada. In fact, many of the same places that we live on are places that uh, uh, Indigenous peoples found uh, attractive and, of course, called home. Although it's still uncertain as to exactly where those early people came from, it's been assumed that they would have been intimately tied to the sea for reasons of travel, nourishment, and others. It's been assumed for various reasons and inferred from early historical records that the early people would have spent their time split between various areas, such as inland during the winter, possibly along large rivers or lakes giving access to open, fresh water, as well as large game and away from the cold coastal winds. And with the exception of a few occasions, they would have remained in these areas until the cold winter storms waned, the ice began to melt, and the schools of migrating fish started coming into the estuaries. But how long does the record go back, and where are those earliest sites? Um, the earliest evidence we have of um, uh, indigenous uh, habitation here in Atlantic Canada uh, is about 12,000 years ago. And um, in the area not far from Truro at uh, the Debert, uh, which was a, uh, a very central point of, um, of the uh, area that we're, we were looking at, near the military base, in fact, the Debert uh, military base is where uh, there were remains that were found in the late 1940s, early 1950s, and then formally excavated in the late 50s and early 60s by the National Museum of Canada. And uh, these remains 
have been uh, radiocarbon dated to uh, roughly about 12,000 years ago. So as we've heard, there is evidence of occupation going back at least 12,000 years from most of Atlantic Canada. And this would have been at a time that the glacial ice was still very thick, covering much of the Maritimes, just barely out of the Debert area, with local sea levels as high or higher than they are today due to the weight of the ice pressing on the land. And as a quick aside for the real science geeks like me, is that one radiocarbon year is not equal to one calendar year. And this is because of the way scientists measure these ages by the decay of radioactive isotopes. Now, in this case, carbon. Therefore, 10,500 radiocarbon years actually represents or calibrates to approximately 12,600 calendar years ago. So if you've heard one or the other dates before, they actually represent the same thing. And similarly, when we're talking about being very close to glaciers or periglacial, these areas tend to be pretty cool or cold at most times of the year, similar to what you get in the Arctic with wind blowing off the glacial ice, big chunks of ice sitting in the water, and really cold meltwater in the streams. And because of the ice first retreated along coastlines that most have since been covered by rising seas, some of the earliest coastal campsites and hunting grounds, or anything older than 12,000 years, if present, would likely have been buried. Now it's important to note that coastlines were so dynamic after the retreat of the glaciers that it wasn't until the coastlines approached their current levels that archaeological evidence of the earliest peoples would have been preserved in areas that are relatively easy to excavate, specifically those that are not currently underwater. Uh, the remains that were found were indicative of a people, probably hunters, these were hunting sites, and the style of the weapons, the tools that have been found, and in this case uh, at Debert, they were uh, strictly lithic or stone, manufactured of stone uh, from the uh, source from the Bay of Fundy. And the style of tools uh, often are referred to as clovis uh, uh, or fluted points. And this is a style of um, arrow point or a spear point that we see throughout uh, North and South America uh, at about this same time period. So certainly um, these were very effective weapons that were used to uh, bring down, in this case in Atlantic Canada, probably caribou. And it is the, the earliest evidence that we have uh, here in Prince Edward Island as well. There was a single find made in the uh, Tryon area here, um, not far from where we are here in uh, uh, west uh, central uh, Prince Edward Island that would date probably from that same time period. And this is shortly after the uh, much of the ice from the last glacial period has uh, um, has uh, melted away, uh, although there's some suggestion that perhaps, as we see up in uh, northern uh, British Columbia and the Yukon, that people actually did venture up on some of the remnant ice caps and so on to hunt for, uh, for caribou. So uh, we know that very early on when the land became available, that people, indigenous people, moved in to capture the, the wild game and resources that were available to them. But what or who were the Clovis people? And we often hear about them in archaeological terms. The Clovis were a group of people that archaeologists across North America have clumped together based on the type of tools that they built. And they're generally considered to be the ancestors of most of the indigenous peoples of all the Americas. Now, although there are some that debate that theory, especially for certain groups, it's currently considered the most plausible theory with those very people 
crossing the Bering Strait on foot between present-day Alaska and Russia, when sea levels were much, much lower, and slowly moving across the continent as ice retreated. So picture many, many thousand years ago, when the sea level was much lower, people walking with all their possessions across what is now the seafloor, and then walking across the country. That's over 7,000 kilometers from Russia to Bingmagi. But that distance was crossed over a time period of close to 10,000 years, meaning less than one kilometer per year, or 30 kilometers or so per generation. Not a great distance to migrate within an individual's lifetime. Dr. Keenlyside continues to tell us why these were some of the earliest sites. Yes, certainly the effects of uh, glaciation uh, removed much of the surficial uh, geology or what we see on the uh, surface at, uh, uh, today is not what was, it was very much shaped by the last glacial period from about uh, 25,000 years ago to about uh, 13 to 15,000 years ago. And then things started to melt. And uh, uh, of course, uh, if there had been people here, they would have had to have been up on ice because in some areas the Ice sheets in Atlantic Canada uh, were certainly hundreds uh, uh, of feet thick, and uh, you uh, certainly wouldn't have wanted to to live on the, in these areas. So, uh, the extent of the last glacial ice sheet uh, goes down into New England, and but people probably were living at the very edge of this, uh, what would turn out to be sort of a moving ice sheet as it melted away over the hundreds and, and thousands of years. Okay, so that's the reason that there's no evidence of people here before the ice retreated. But as I mentioned earlier, sea levels were much lower at the time. In fact, about 20,000 years ago, global sea level was approximately 130 meters lower than it is today, over 400 feet. So I wondered if perhaps people were living in ice-free areas of the Grand Banks or the Scotian Shelf that were above sea level at the time, and what type of artifacts may lay buried under the ocean floor? Um, we do see occasionally uh, dredged uh, remains of um, various kinds of uh, sea mammals and um, and other creatures. Uh, uh, the bones and so on are dredged from the ocean bottom that uh, uh, suggest that uh, these were areas that uh, were habitable. And certainly the uh, the evidence that we have geologically speaking shows that the continental shelf had emerged. Uh, uh, obviously at, uh, at a time when uh, there was likely people around. And uh, one of the areas of uh, particular interest that I was involved with when I was with the uh, National Museum was the, uh, the area, the land areas between Prince Edward Island and mainland Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And we know from the um, uh, work that was done uh, geologically and some of the subsurface research uh, was that much of this area was exposed land from uh, about 10, 11,000 years ago up until about four or 5,000 years ago when water levels once again rose and breached that what was a landmass. Um, in a published work, uh, I've called this particular landmass that was um, uh, would have been available to people as Northumbria, as sort of the ancient landscape uh, uh, that was part of Atlantic Canada. And people hunted. We know there was a lake, for instance, Lake Tormentine, in between about where the bridge is and so on. Uh, so it was a um, uh, an interesting landscape that would have supported uh, land and or mammals as well as um, uh, various types of vegetation and so on that people would have uh, exploited and uh, have traveled across. Wow. Okay. So people were moving between New Brunswick and PEI on foot across what is now the Northumberland Strait, 
the same as we still do between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. There was even a time when the island of Newfoundland would have been accessible from the south coast of Labrador using very rudimentary boats via the Strait of Belle Isle. But what is the evidence of early marine use? Well, we certainly see in our archaeological work the, the kinds of um, uh, tools and technologies that were adapted to uh, marine resource use. I'm going to interject here with an example David shared with me after our interview. And as we'll discuss later, there were many tools that were used to harvest marine resources. But there was one interesting find in particular that shows the early use of the ocean in the offshore areas. And that is of an ulu, a large oval knife that was found in 1983 by a scallop fisherman dragging in water depths between 35 and 51 meters, or 115 to 170 feet. And this multi-purpose cutting and scraping tool was found perfectly preserved and retained its original sharpness. A similar find was off of Digby, Nova Scotia, with both of these artifacts estimated at between five and 6,000 years. And we know that sea levels have remained relatively unchanged in the last 6,000 years. And that's what makes this find so interesting. That although these people were, would certainly have had boats and would have been fishing in offshore areas, it's uncertain as to whether the ulu would have been dropped from a boat or lost during seal processing in the winter or the early spring from the offshore ice. Now let's talk about some of those marine resources. Some of the early archaeological work by people such as uh, W.J. Windenberg uh, back in the about the First World War time in the uh, 19, early 1900s uh, and subsequent work that was done uh, on various shell midden sites uh, uh, across the Maritimes in New Brunswick, uh, PEI, and Nova Scotia. Um, they show a range of tools, and of course, uh, if there's uh, some of these shell middens, preserved bone remains that we see, uh, all different types of uh, marine fauna uh, preserved, uh, uh, which um, uh, show that there was a strong dependence on seasonal resources, um, and uh, of course, shellfish, which were extremely important. And the evidence that we see today are some of these shell middens, uh, waste dump areas, basically, where people were... Uh, eating and throwing away the shells and so on, and these accumulated into uh, relatively large mounds along the shoreline areas. Places like southern uh, in the Passamaquoddy Bay, for instance, there's very, very large accumulations of uh, uh, shell middens, and it was heavily populated in that case by probably Passamaquoddy's uh, and uh, Maliseet-speaking people, and probably Mi'kmaq involved as well. Uh, but coastal Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island here, uh, we see, um, uh, again, extensive shell midden sites that um, show that there was a strong dependence. And, and a lot of these um, um, uh Areas that were particularly attractive were estuaries, and you see in North coastal Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI, the meeting of fresh water with salt water, and some of the uh, embayments, some of the estuaries were prime locations uh, because you had sand flats where you could get um, uh, shellfish and uh, that were extremely uh, abundant. And as well, you'd get the uh, anadromous and, and spawning fish that would come up the uh, uh, estuaries. And uh, you'd also have the freshwater resources as well that'd be associated with the sort of riverine environment. So these um, both saltwater and freshwater environs were uh, that we see in each of the Atlantic provinces were extremely rich for uh, an abundance of marine resources at different times of the year. Um, 
the kinds of technology that we found particularly um, interesting and informative uh, insights we worked here in Prince Edward Island, and I would say uh, in New Brunswick in my own experience as well, uh, employed the use of fish weirs. In fact, according to Hoffman and various early fathers and reverends, the use of marine resources was well beyond just shell-bearing organisms that are often found. In fact, while waiting for the spring spawning runs, the winter flounder was one of the earliest fish to become available, followed by the smelt, herring, sea-run trout, as well as the sturgeon, salmon, striped bass, cod, and others, even different types of sharks as were discovered in more than one midden. And these ancestors would have fished with bone hooks, spears, three-pronged leisters, nets, and other fixed harpoons or harpoons with removable tips attached to a line. Now, of course, shellfish were easily accessible in many areas in most of the ice-free times of the year, and even under the ice. And these would have included whelks, oysters, scallops, quahog, hard and soft clams, mussels, as would have the lobster and the crab. And shellfish are indeed the most plentiful in the archaeological record due to the thick shells that are resistant to weathering, as opposed to fish bones or other organisms. And lobster, for instance, would have been harvested in the spring and the summer, collected either by hand or spear while waiting at low tide. And they would have been captured by hook and line and even in loose baskets or incidentally in fish weirs. And early Europeans remarked how plentiful they were based on how easy they were to capture with minimal effort. It was literally child's play. Now, not all of these organisms would have been available everywhere or at all times, and this is one of the reasons that people moved around so much and timed their movements with the seasons. The people didn't move around haphazardly. They knew exactly when to be at the right place for the right migrations. In fact, many groups would have spent the fall and winter away from the cold winds in the coast, with the exception of certain trips back to the ocean during the winter, as noted by Father Bayard, with the Mi'kmaq fishing for tomcod, or young cod, as he notes, under the ice in December, and hunting seals on the pack ice in January or February. And you'd find uh, abundant eel bones as well as uh, gaspro and a whole range of uh, different types of uh, marine species that were captured in these, uh, what would have been types of uh, fish weirs uh, that were put across the entrances uh, in these tidal areas. So you'd have the tidal sort of flushing back and forth twice daily, moving the marine resources with them uh, into some of these catch areas uh, and uh, would have been uh, incredibly rich. Uh, one of the sites here in uh, uh, up in St. Peter's Bay, uh, we see a range not only of uh, fish species, but as well we find sharks as well as uh, cod and small and large types of uh, marine uh, animals uh, being captured and the remains being found in the archaeological um, sort of places where these were eaten and then discarded. So uh, you get a broad range of uh, rich marine life showing up uh, uh, in our archaeological sites. There would have been definitely, and we see in some of the cases here in northern uh, shore of uh, Prince Edward Island, where uh, uh, the seasonal uh, occurrence of, uh, say, for instance, uh, seal or walrus and so on certainly would have been a major attraction. Uh, but for the rest, uh, different times of the year and so on, some of these uh, fish weir capture areas and so on would be uh, uh, extremely abundant and would give them the sustaining ability to, uh, through the seasons and so on, to uh, have a rich uh, diet. As Dr. Keenless had mentioned, seals, walruses, and some of the smaller whales and porpoises would have been harvested on a seasonal basis, 
either from beaches, nets, or using various types of harpoons, either the spear type or one with a removable point that was tied to a line, possibly even from the sea ice. And these would have provided not only a rich food source, but also thick, high-quality skins and hides for a variety of uses, including boats. And one of the most challenging things is finding these tools in the archaeological record. Uh, the kinds of um, tools that uh, would have been very prolific probably were made out of wood, and many of those are not preserved. And uh, in terms of looking at the kind of story or history that we put together about the past, a lot of it in the archaeological record is about preservation, and uh, we um, uh, tend not to see those items that are lost to um, the acidic soils that we see. Uh, we're fortunate that in many of the shell midden sites, because they're very alkali, because of the shellfish, they do preserve uh, certainly bone materials and uh, the organic materials that otherwise would be lost. But uh, in most situations, wood is not preserved, and certainly that would have been a key raw material that they would have used for procuring uh, and making different as well. Nets and that, they had a full range, I'm sure, of uh, historically. We know that ethnographically, that they had various kinds of nets. And we see that in the archaeological, rare, rarely in the archaeological record, but when it's preserved, certainly they had that knowledge of uh, procuring using various kinds of net technology, uh, both in the associated with the water and marine species, as well as uh, capturing birds and so on using nets. So, uh, uh, but that, generally speaking, we don't see in the archaeological record. As we move along, I want to briefly talk about the ocean-going vessels, as this would have been very important, as they relate not only to travel, but also to hunting porpoises and possibly seals, as well as fishing in deeper water, such as the larger pelagics like swordfish and tuna. Unfortunately, due to travel reasons, we were not able to interview one of the experts on Mi'kmaq boat building, but I did touch on it briefly with Dr. Keenly's side. There was a number of years ago a canoe found on the beach up in northeastern New Brunswick, actually, that was um, uh, quite old, a uh, uh, dugout canoe. Uh, uh, we do see um, you know, different types of uh, watercraft used historically. Uh, for not only birch bark to sort of the uh, traditional canoes uh, that we associate with uh, the Mi'kmaq, uh, but we also see, uh, and historically, uh, moose hide being used and uh, caribou hide used uh, over wooden frames as uh, very portable kinds of boats. Uh, um, it's interesting because we often associate those skin-type boats with the Arctic peoples, indigenous peoples, uh, but uh, I think it's fair to say that probably the uh, one of the earliest types of watercraft that were here in Atlantic Canada uh, were wood frames covered in different types of skins or raw materials uh, uh, that we see persist right through to the historic period. As Dr. Keenley said, mentioned, some of the earliest vessels utilized along the coast would have been dugout canoes, similar to the one that was found buried in the beach in northern New Brunswick. And these would have been replaced by much lighter wooden frame canoes with some sort of material stretched over the frame, depending on its availability. The Mi'kmaq made a number of different types of canoes of Witten, primarily based on where they were utilized, whether from small streams, rivers, lakes, or bays in the open ocean. And one of the great technologies of the Mi'kmaq people was these open water boats that some know as the humpback canoe for their large hump near the middle. And the humpback canoe was a relatively small boat as compared to modern-day seafaring vessels. 
and this allowed them to travel great distances on open water while still being small enough to carry and navigate the upper reaches of some of the watersheds and portage to the next whenever necessary, such as traveling between the Bay of Fundy to the Northumberland Strait via the Tantramar Marsh. And the Mi'kmaq were able to travel relatively quickly up and down the Bay of Fundy by timing their travel and using the massive tides and the currents. The tides in the Bay of Fundy are some of the highest in the world, reaching a height or an amplitude of around 16 meters, about 50 feet. And there are only a handful of places in the world where the tides even come close to this amplitude. These tidal areas would have acted like superhighways, connecting the communities or the family units with one another. And the large mud and sand flats along the coast would certainly have provided ample areas to harvest food. Given the size of these boats and the long distances traveled, many of the canoes were also designed to be used as temporary shelters while on voyage, simply flipping them upside down at a campsite and propping them up with a stick, thus providing shelter from the rain. There are a few theories to why the seagoing canoe had a high spot or a hump in the middle, and some have suggested that it was a way to keep water out of the canoe when there were larger waves, while others have suggested that it was for stability in the waves, and then others still have suggested that it was a way to increase the freeboard or the buoyancy of the canoe when leaning over the side to haul in relatively large fish or marine mammals. And as we move along in time, I wonder whether or not the Norse or the Viking would have had much influence on the early inhabitants of Mi'kma'ki, as they most certainly did in other parts of the world, such as Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, I'd have to say no. Uh, we do have evidence, certainly from uh, in the north of the eastern Arctic. There's uh, certainly evidence of you know things like chain mail and uh, various kinds of metal uh, objects and so on that have been found associated with Norse. Uh, we have the Lanza Meadow site uh, in uh, northern Newfoundland on the peninsula that uh, uh, is a, um, a clearly documented uh, Norse site that was first found by the Ingsteads in the 60s and then subsequently uh, Brigitte Wallace and her crews from Parks Canada investigated uh, there. From the sagas uh, and their, uh, the information literary sources, uh, it appears that there probably were uh, Norse that explored various parts of the northeastern coast, uh, including the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and some have suggested uh, that Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia, uh, New Brunswick may have been destinations, uh, uh, and that's entirely possible uh, given the certainly nomadic and uh, seafaring nature and abilities of the Norse to be able to travel great distances uh, with watercraft. Uh, but in the, uh, I've spent uh, uh, probably uh, 40 years looking along beaches and places in Atlantic Canada for uh, uh, Norse or any evidence of it and have not seen any other than what we've seen in, uh, uh, in Newfoundland through the uh, Lanza Meadows site. But, uh, so there's certainly not much evidence uh, that we see physically, but um, certainly the, the sagas are tempting uh, and certainly uh, suggest that they were here in some, uh, uh, some form or other, probably in the, uh, from, uh, after about 900 or 1000 AD to about 12 or 1300 AD, there are possibilities of their, their presence. So if not the Norse, then what influence would the Basque, the Portuguese, the Spanish, or the French sailors had on any of the inhabitants prior to any permanent European settlement in present-day maritimes? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, uh, we see in the historical record of, um, you know, people um, 
the, the early explorers, making reference to the fact that uh, from the 15 and 1600s that, that they appear not to have been the first people that uh, indigenous people saw, what effect that they would have had um, in terms of uh, trade or uh, on the populations themselves in those early centuries, um, say after uh, the 16th century uh, and before is, is uh, unknown. Uh, there must have been some contact uh, clearly after the uh, 15 and 1600s that um, uh, would have resulted probably in transmission of diseases and so on that would have, have an effect on the, the populations. But um, it was clear that in the early historical records of um, the uh, the Spanish, Portuguese and others that were exploring the coast that uh, they were aware the Aboriginal people, Indigenous people, were aware that um, there were people coming from afar that were different from themselves. Um, it's hard to know if that had a prolonged effect in the uh, in the first few uh, uh, in the first few centuries, but um, quite clearly the um, transmission of um, uh, communicable diseases and so on like that had a huge um, uh, negative impact on Aboriginal peoples, but. I suspect in those early times, early contact times, uh, that the uh, trade probably was quite active. And certainly we see that with um, some of the sites in Newfoundland, for instance, the Beotak, using uh, raw materials uh, that were part of the sort of trade and making those into more traditional tools. And I'm sure that uh, even here in, in Prince Edward Island, we occasionally find glass bottle remains and so on that were fashioned into um, more traditional kinds of uh, uh, stone tool-like types of implements and so on. So they use the raw materials to make them into more traditional kinds of uh, implements. But um, the very early contact uh, uh, in the, say, 1400s, uh, early 1500s here in Atlantic Canada uh, is, is one that was probably broader than we realize, but um, uh, that's something that the current evidence uh, uh, only just gives a hint as to uh, the impact they might have had. As we approach the conclusion of our conversation, and while discussing the tools that would have been in early usage and the similarities with tools and boats from other Indigenous cultures, Dr. Keenly Saad really stressed that these cultures were highly mobile and had a great ability to adapt. In looking at the archaeological record, I think one of the things that tells us uh, uh, a very important point about the not only the um, uh, ingenuity and resilience of uh, Indigenous peoples, is their ability to adapt and to uh, be mobile. We see in Atlantic Canada evidence of uh, raw materials being moved over great distances. And here in Prince Edward Island, in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, we see some raw materials uh, to make stone tools and so on coming from extreme parts of northern Labrador uh, and from various places uh, across the northeast. And I think sometimes we forget, uh, especially in the historical context where people are, um, you know, focusing on sort of living in one place or uh, just a few places sort of locally on reserves and so on, that um, uh, in uh, more ancient times, people had the ability to move uh, great distances to not only exploit resources, but for trade for working with neighboring groups, uh, partnering, uh, as well as exchanging ideas, uh, social interaction, and so on. And um, uh, it's one of the things that, from those very earliest occupations that we talk about uh, with the, associated with the Paleo-Indian, that 
it appears to have been a broad cultural base, at least in the tools that we see that sort of shaped or that were part that identify that culture. But that doesn't mean that there weren't uh, individual or groups uh, that were clearly had their own identities, but used similar kinds of tools. Uh, but certainly people traveled great distances and that mobility uh, is really, uh, uh, you have to credit the um, uh, ability for people to adapt and to be able to work with their environment very closely in using various types of transportation, such as watercraft, as well as uh, um, various kinds of exploring the interiors and so on of the of the Northeast, that this is something that is characteristic of Indigenous history uh, is their ability to adapt and to uh, make the most of their environment to uh, eke out a living and a, and a very uh, uh, sustaining living over many thousands of years, which is uh, no small accomplishment for sure. And it's something that sometimes the mobility question or how people lived um, is sort of put down because people move through seasonal rounds and so on, yet really... It was getting the most out of the environment and probably from a conservation point of view, probably meant that all in particular resources weren't depleted. Uh, but it also meant that there was a lot of social interaction between uh, various communities um, and sometimes over great distances. Um, now, in trying to tie our conversation together and bring it back to the ocean, I was set straight for interchanging culture with archaeology when I asked whether the ocean would have had an influence on early Indigenous culture? Um, that's kind of an environmental determinism question. Uh, um, I think people clearly adapt uh, their, their lives and their livelihoods to the environment that's around them. And I think that um, uh, with the abundant resources that um, uh, right from the earliest times, uh, if we look at our uh, earliest evidence that we have from what we archaeologists call a Paleo-Indian people that had those uh, very early uh, Clovis-like points and fluted points and so on like that, the evidence that we see suggests a hunting economy, yet uh, I would bet that that really is only part of the story, that um, uh, they would not have turned away at the kinds of coastal resources and uh, marine resources that were here even at that very early time. So I think the uh, uh, clearly where the resources were, uh, were the points of attraction, and uh, it meant their lives, and it meant survival, and the um, uh, dependence on uh, whether it be riverine or coastal uh, saltwater resources um, or those estuary areas in between, that these were the bountiful areas that uh, provided uh, sustenance and a livelihood uh, throughout the year. So um, whether one shapes the other or one follows the other, uh, it's kind of immaterial. I guess it's a question of uh, where do I survive best? And uh, certainly in the coastal environs, uh, that is an area that is going to produce uh, the kinds of resources that you need to survive. A point to be stressed here is that no native culture was unchanged for centuries. This is a very static view of Indigenous culture. Archaeology has shown that all Indigenous cultures demonstrate a record of innovation and adaptation to various kinds of change. New people, changes in climate, new ideas, all of which required innovative responses. Well, there we have it. That concludes our episode for today. Thank you so much, David, for all your insight. Hopefully we'll see each of our listeners again soon as we begin to narrow into more coastal and oceanic topics. 
next time as we look into shifting baselines and a history of fishing in Atlantic Canada and how that will shape our future. Wallalia. Injured anchoring and lying low. Executive producer for the Bhutan Our Living Ocean series is Roger Honka with the episodes produced by the Maritime Aboriginal People's Council. I'm your host, Brian Martin. The song Broken Reed in English, written by George Edward Chevery, performed by Kalolin Johnson, translated and performed in Mi'kmaq by Elder Catherine Sorby, with administrative support by Michelle Bernard. Production support provided by the Government of Canada, specifically Transport Canada's Indigenous and Local Communities Engagement and Partnership Program through Canada's Ocean Protection Plan. All rights reserved. Coming to heal your water world Injured Can you hear the eagle cry High above the storm